0: Hi, this is James Michael Brody, and this is Black and Gold. Think of these podcasts as a home away from home, Um, a homecoming, if you will, as we share the accounts of African-Americans who studied, taught, and worked on the University of Colorado's Boulder campus. And we have stories to tell, my friends. Stories of joys and sorrows, defeats and victories. <sighs> Lessons learned, lives lived, our collective memories. You see, this is about way more than the time we all spent on a particular piece of real estate. Rather, these in-depth conversations will be the basis for the upcoming book, The Black and Gold Project. So kick back Check it out, listen to these celebrations of life, and I hope that what you hear will spark some memories for you too, memories that you might one day share, because my friends we are all black and golden. In May, 1977, Rhonda was part of a group of students that took over Helms Hall on the CU Boulder campus, protesting CU's plan to eliminate the educational opportunity, a program that made the college dreams of many African-American students possible. As a young person, she was forced to fight outside of the classroom for a chance to earn her degree inside of it. The 17-hour takeover changed her life. Even before that day, Rhonda was on a journey of discovery, affirmation, the realization of self, and the acceptance of herself as valuable even in places that were not welcoming, and of fighting and winning impossible battles. See, this is the essence of Rhonda White, her constant ability to overcome, to excel, and to live her best life. The daughter of an Air Force pilot, she was born in Philadelphia. Her family traveled around the United States into Europe, opening her up to a world of possibilities. Combined with the grounding of a loving mother and two powerful grandmothers, she learned to handle the challenges that presented themselves, taking the roads less traveled, getting to know and appreciate different people and the beauty within them. Rhonda's journey took her from CU to Grambling University to New York, to the Pentagon in Washington, to the real estate profession, and to helping people in the mental health field to raising a son who made it to the National Basketball Association. It was not the life that she expected, but it was and still is a life lived well. see, Rhonda is still seeking, still on her journey, still in the midst of a great adventure, still with miles to go before she can sleep. This is Rhonda White.
1: there's just some challenges I I don't even know really how to explain them sometimes but there's just Mm -hmm. been some challenges at this point in life that I just really didn't think you know I would have we can plan and we can hope but there's no guarantee and I don't necessarily mean it as negative as it may sound but it's just that I thought things would be different Different. And uh, yeah sometimes I'm just like okay Lord how did it
2: get to be like this You know, there are times when I think about who we were at that age and who we are today. Could we, good, bad, or indifferent, could we have predicted any of this at 18, 19, 20? Rhonda, thank you, my friend. Uh, It's been about a minute or two since we last actually saw each other. And one of us is aged a lot better than the other one, so. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I
1: don't
2: know about all that. I'm like twice the person I am now, and so Many not in good ways, but you, you are just amazing, um, just amazing. Here's what I want to know. Rhonda, tell me about, you know, tell me about the people who begat you. Tell me about the people who made Rhonda, Rhonda.
1: Okay. Well, I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at Women's Medical Center.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: Ronald and Veronica White. Um, mm-hmm. My dad was a career Air Force man. He was an officer, and it afforded us a lot of travel. So I lived uh, in quite a couple of places in the United States and spent five years in Germany at two different bases. And then we came to Colorado in 72 because he was stationed at the Air Force Academy Prep School. I would say, though, when I look at the essence of who I am, that both of my grandmothers, are the people that have had the most influence on me in the way that I look at life, the way I treat people, the way I embrace natural, as much natural living and eating as much as possible. I have four siblings. I'm the oldest. That was very difficult because I felt like I had a lot of responsibility that I shouldn't have had at a young age. So I felt like I missed a lot of childhood.
2: Tell me a little bit about your grandmothers. Talk about them a little bit. Talk about their influence. Did they ever tell you anything in particular that that sticks with you today?
1: Well, my one grandmother, I have to say my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, was very rooted and grounded in her faith. Mm -hmm. So even though I went on, you know, my own journey of living life with or without God, she was the one who probably brought me back to the reality of having faith and how important it was to have faith and to have a relationship with him. And then my other grandmother was the hospitable one. Mm. I mean, she always had people over her house. We always had Thanksgiving and Christmas over her house, the paternal grandmother. So that's where I get probably my open-heartedness and my welcoming of people. And she just always felt like, you know, you should always share. You should never turn anybody away. Both of them, though, were very encouraging to me, and they both would always tell me what a beautiful young lady I was because I had my doubts about that for a lot of years. And they both just told me how beautiful I was, how much they loved me. So that was huge for me
2: from them. Talk about military life a little bit. You know, I, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm an Air Force grad. My dad was an NCO in there for 29 years. What was it like, and, and, you know, moving from place to place to place? And how did, you, how did you find living that kind of life?
1: So it's kind of crazy because, you know, when it was time to move, I would be very sad because I was leaving friends. And so I never, and I never, I don't have like lifelong friends really because of the military. However, because of my adventurous spirit. I always like. I also liked moving like that because I knew I was going on to a new adventure. I was going to meet new people, see new things. So Mm -hmm. even though I don't have like my elementary school friend, I don't think I would ever trade moving. I wish some of the other bases he could have gone to, like the Philippines and in Florida. He had chosen to go. That my dad had kept flying versus taking, you know, the teaching and coaching position at the prep school. Now, there are friends and thank God for Facebook, there are people that were very close to me that I've caught up with because of Facebook. And that's Mm -hmm. really cool. And to see that you could still like one friend, I hadn't seen her since I was she was thirteen and I was fourteen or fifteen and we have talked to each other now like we had never stopped talking to you know, each other. And that was probably we probably connected about four or five years ago. So you're talking about connecting at 57 and 55 and still remembering the friendship from, you know, 13 and 15. That's awfully cool. I love traveling because I love the culture. I love meeting Mm -hmm. other people. It's definitely made me the person who is accepting of everybody. Like, Mm -hmm. I know it's really almost impossible to say that we have zero prejudices, but I feel like I come close to zero because I've learned to embrace you know, the different cultures and the different people and the different ethnicities and honor them for the way they live in their life. And I think I've learned a lot, too, from different communities and and countries and cultures and how they live, especially when it comes to family and community that sometimes way outweigh the United States of America. And it caused me as an adult, actually, I've been called a gypsy, because as an adult, every two or three years, I felt like it was time to go somewhere else. And I think I've probably almost lived my life like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Because um, right. you get, you getting used to that lifestyle. We, we moved every other year, you know. And, yeah, yeah. You know, after spending, what, the first seven years in, in Michigan, it seemed like every other year we're off to someplace new. I mean, I'm with the 10 different schools, three different high schools, well, you know, just, you, you just kind of got used to that. And you're right, you, 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 if you saw somebody again on a different base, you, you considered yourself lucky because yeah. that, that didn't yeah. happen all the time. Talk about any particular place. You know, it, it, it could be in this country, it could be overseas. Was there a place that stu- stuck out for you as, you know, if I ever did settle, that would be a cool place to be?
1: I don't know. I have quite a couple of them. (laughs) I could live probably in either place in Germany. I would probably pick Wiesbaden because it's a bigger city, and I am a city girl, so I love the city. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if it was Germany, I would pick Wiesbaden. But then I had an opportunity because of my son's career to go to uh, Margarita Island in Venezuela, and I Mm -hmm. definitely could live there. And then I did visit Italy, and I I really think I can live in Italy too. So, you know, that's, again, the military, and now we can probably add the Gemini in it. I can't
2: just pick one. You're all people in all places, my friend.
1: That's it. That's it. But I have had very good times in both of them and just met, you know, the neatest people. And for me in Germany, so I went to Germany at 9, and mm. came back at 15th. Mm. So those were pretty important years to be, you know, to grow up. And I, it was just the best place at that point in time to
2: be for me. Now, let me ask you, in all of your travels, how aware were you as a child? Because you and I, you know, came up at the same time, the same year.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How aware were you of what was going on in the world? Did that have any impact on you or those conversations your family had? Absolutely.
1: I lived in Waco, Texas when JFK was shot. Oh, wow. Um, I went to a Catholic school, and I was the only child of color in a whole Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade,
2: Mm. or maybe
1: even high school. I don't remember that part. And so right away at six years old, I was being criticized for being the color of my skin as well as my last name because they didn't match. It didn't make sense to the children. And so that, I mean, I it started off at as, as a very early age, and I noticed it the whole time because we went from Texas to North Carolina, and it was just as bad. And then we went to New Jersey before my dad went to Vietnam, and we were back in Catholic school, and then my middle sister, my brother, and I were the only children of color. And the nuns, and even what they considered to be their niceness, they treated us as like we were you know oddly special i i would mm-hmm. like to say just special but oddly special because we were the you know you're the black kids and you and you need help and you need extra this and you know, and of course they would always my sister for some reason would always cry cuz they would say something about you know praying for my dad or something but i mm-hmm. mean it it just seemed like extra attention that wasn't always real real negative but you could tell in your heart it wasn't real real positive like you weren't like everybody else. Going to Germany was interesting because you had a lot of Germans that love you, but then you had Germans that they primarily hated Americans and didn't want us there. But, you know, the black American, and especially because soldiers had left children, they had left white and black children there. So there was some sometimes some little distaste. Uh, with the Germans, but I, you know, I started becoming aware at six. The crazy thing was with the family, though. Michael, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Nobody hardly said nothing in the home. We didn't talk about things. When we got to Colorado, I think this was the worst place that I ever lived in terms of people having issues in Colorado Springs. Blacks against whites against Mexicans against what they called they called the ranchers or people who came from homes that owned ranches, they called them um, the goat ropers. Mm. And everybody was divided. We had just come into the, in the 70s was when it was kind of becoming okay for black men to date white women or Mexican women. And the controversy surrounding that and the way that some of us girls were treated and talked to by the black guys, but then we were disdained by both the white females and the white males. So it, Colorado was probably the worst of every any place that I've lived. But we at home, we never, ever talked about it. Every once in a while, I might hear, you know, my dad or my grandmother say something about, oh, those white folks or those – there was a word they used. It wasn't crackers or white folks. They said something, and then – but then my one grandmother, my paternal grandmother, she seemed to also have a big distaste in her mouth toward black people. You know, she considered the people that weren't living up to their expectation, that were live, that were destroying Philadelphia, you know. Mm-hmm. She didn't really pay attention to what was going on and why our neighborhood were becoming the way they were and looking the way she just blamed it all on black people and how they were doing. So I heard things, but we never ever talked about how we were feeling, how we were being treated at school. And I did come home one time, I remember, and told my dad, they're going to probably call you, and I'm going to get in trouble. I said, I'm so tired of everybody asking me, do I live on the south side? So -hmm. we lived on the north end of Colorado Springs in a really nice new house because my dad worked at the Air Force Academy. But most of the black people who were, you know, because they were NCOs Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Army, they lived at the south end near Fort Carson. So a lot of them lived on what they called the South side. I got so mad one day, Michael, I told the teacher, you know, something to the effect, oh, yeah, and we don't even have an outhouse in our backyard, okay? Teachers would, you know, just assume because of the color of your skin, you lived on the South side. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
1: just got tired of it. It made me, you know, very angry. Yeah. But as early as six years old, I, I noticed for sure.
2: You know, what was, you know, academically, um, schooling, what was that like for you um, in terms of your studies? Was, was was school something you were into? Was it like, eh, I can do this, but the, the, the drama sometimes gets in the way? What did you experience in terms of that part of your life?
1: I realized, I, I can't say when I realized, but I realized I was a pretty intelligent young lady. And at a certain point in my life, It kind of was hurtful that the way that teachers and everybody think about you because of the color of your skin. So I felt like there's a lot more that I could have accomplished, the potential in me to be a greater person. Mm -hmm. And I'm careful how I say that because there's nothing wrong with me now. You understand what I'm saying? But I feel like I would have Mm -hmm. accomplished more. I would have done more if if the teachers didn't have some of the crazy thoughts about our brains and, you know, we can't learn stuff and we're technically stupid, you know, we're not smarter than the Caucasian student because I was almost always the brightest kid in my class until it got to chemistry. But I also feel that some of that has to do with where I lived and at what time. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that if we had stayed or had gone back to, like when we came from Germany, if we had gone someplace where uh, there were more students of color and there were more teachers of color that that might not have happened you know like for instance if we lived in DC would have been a big when I was a child it would have been different even probably somewhere in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia it might have been different I don't know but the places that we did you know Texas North Carolina uh, Colorado they're they're not favorable places for us I feel like that it had an impact on lessening what I could have become. And then I don't feel that my father, unfortunately, was that helpful either because he just said, you got to take this class, you got to take this class, you got to take this class, and then he would seem to be so disappointed when you didn't get a B or an A. And hmm. so there was really no encouragement uh, from that end either to say, you know what, you you could do this and you could go to school here and you could do
2: this. So, Yeah. Talk about, you know, you get to a certain age and college sounds like it was a given. It it sounds almost like 13th grade. Is Is that an accurate assessment?
1: Yeah, it was just, I mean, the way that the talk, the conversations went in our home, yes. It was just an automatic that I was going to college. My dad went to college after he got married, after he had three children, but he went to college, he has a degree in math. So it was automatic we're going to college. But then it was also like, Oh, you didn't work hard enough in school, so I'm not going to help you financially go to college. So, but I was determined to go to school, and of course, I came to University of Colorado first because I was here in, in, you know, I was in Colorado Springs, so I wanted to go to school where a lot of my friends were going. So I came to Boulder, and of course, those were very. I loved the people we met, and I loved like my friends and and hanging out and even partying. But Mm -hmm. Colorado CU was probably not the best place or the best choice because, Mm. you know, we were there at a time where we were really fighting to be educated. For people to take us seriously, and especially if you chose a major that a lot of the teachers and instructors there didn't believe you should major in. I mean, that's where Mm. I really encounter teachers saying our brains – are smaller than Caucasians. I'm like what? So,
2: what was what was your major when you when you came up?
1: Man, I had so many majors, it was crazy. Uh, hmm. It really was. I never did get really settled in who I should have been. I started off with education, then I ended up going to psychology, and then finally I filled in on recreation administration with an emphasis on social urban youth. I'll tell you, Dr. Johnson was there then, and he was probably, besides BP, Dr. Johnson was probably one of the best influences in my life. And then the crazy thing was he went to Gremlin, and I didn't even know he went to Gremlin to be the president, and then I transferred to Gremlin, and there he was.
2: So what was your last day like in Boulder? Because clearly it wasn't calling your name, and you you got out of there and you you did head to Gremlin. What was that last day like? What was the whole dis- the process, decision-making process like? You know, I
1: finally decided to go to an HBCU because quite a couple people were leaving, and, and quite mm. a couple people that were really, like, dear friends to me were either going to uh, an HBCU or going back home. Mm. I remember Alan. I can't remember Alan's last name, but he went back to Jersey because they were giving him such a hard time about wanting to be. I think uh, his major was biology. So I've just kind of picked a school. I'd never been to none of them. I'd Mm -hmm. never been to Louisiana. So it was kind of bittersweet because, you know, when I ended that semester, it was fall semester of 77. So Mm -hmm. I went because I was at Boulder for two years. So fall 77, like, I mean, it was just like I went home for Christmas and I never came back. I was sad about leaving a lot of people. And and a lot of people, I don't think they thought I was really going to go, that I was going to be back in January because you just can't go to Louisiana all by yourself, Rhonda. You don't know anybody. But I felt a sense of empowerment, I would say, because I thought I was going to go somewhere, not knowing anything about the school, but I thought I was going to go somewhere where I was wanted and people were going to embrace me because we were all going to be this, look the same. However, I I also was very sad about losing, you know, leaving people. Like I said, like I didn't know Dr. Johnson was gone. I didn't want to leave the money. Um, I didn't want to leave, you know, all the people in BEP that had helped me so much. Um, And then, of course, my best friend at that time was Beth Scott. And I, I really, that was the first time I had a friend for like a pretty long time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it it was, it was bittersweet. It was like, I think, I think this is the best thing for me, but I also felt like I'm going to be lose, you know, leaving some foundations and relationships that maybe I shouldn't. My dad wasn't happy at all. He said I was going to ruin my life by going to a school that was, you know, I would be looked at as a, a radical person because I had to go to school that had all black people on it and stuff like that. So Mm-hmm. I, I had to go against his wishes and figuring out how was I going to, although I was already kind of doing that, figuring out how I was going to pay for school. But it was even more scary because I was going out of state.
2: So you really were on your own.
1: I was. Mm-hmm.
2: So you arrived at Graham's. What was as you expected and what was maybe something you didn't expect? Oh, my gosh.
1: I was, like, devastated. I'm like, what did I do? I mean, it was in comparison to see you like a broke-down school in the country. And I was like, OMG. And so when I got there, the first thing I did was try to find where could I go pick up the sheets for my bed. And they were like, girl, ain't no sheets. You got to bring your own sheets. And I was like, oh, my God. So, Ursula, I don't know if you remember Ursula because she was only there, I think, for one semester, but she used to date, um, uh, I can't tell you, I was one of the football players. And, but anyway, mm-hmm. she had a cousin in Shreveport, and that's who picked me up in, at the airport in Shreveport and took me to Grandland. So they turned, that lady took me right, or young, you know, we were young girls, and she took me right back to her family in Shreveport for the weekend, and her mother or aunt, somebody like that, gave me sheets and towels to take back to school on Sunday so that I could have, you know. Then I discovered the roaches. And oh. um Yeah. Oh. And yeah, and just the way I mean, just the way the school was not taken care of. But after I got used to everything, it still turned out to be probably the best place to be, to be honest with you. And uh man, you got a lot of beans and rice. Let's get that straight and fried chicken. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. So the food was definitely a step up. So <laughs> no,
1: the food was – and, you know, just then there were actually, like, boys on campus that talked to me, and, you know, we went to the, the dances and stuff, and, you know, and there there was some things that they did. The freedoms that I had at CU were gone. You had to go to class. And mm. if you missed so many classes based on what year of school you were in, you could fail a class simply for like missing four classes in a whole semester now you know see you, I'd stop in class when I wanted to. The boys and the girls did not live in the same camp the same dorms at that time, and if a boy wanted to see you, he had to come to the front and check in, and they called you and you came down uh before I left Gramlin was when they started allowing us to have visitors in our room, but it was only from 6 to 10 p.m. on a Saturday, or maybe Friday and Saturday, but definitely a Saturday. That boy had to sign in and sign out. And I I swear to God, almost everybody went to church on Sunday. I never seen anything like it. And then that Mm -hmm. was the first time I saw a preacher or a teacher that was our age that could, like, Mm -hmm. really teach the Bible. So there was a lot of things that made me proud. I think the, the restoration of being proud of who I am Really mm-hmm. took place down there.
2: Mm-hmm. So what was Grambling like? And what, what, what did you settle on a major? I did.
1: I stayed in recreation, but down there I had to make it recreation leisure. Then my the director of the program was an amazing man. It was very very great. My grades improved. I made the president's scholarship after one semester. But unfortunately, I still didn't finish school. I had one semester, and I came back here and got pregnant with my son. But I, w- I ended up wishing that I had chosen to go to Grambling or even maybe another HBCU totally versus going to CU. Yeah.
2: Now you're 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 becoming a mom, so life is about to change. Take me through that journey. What what happens next?
1: I was mad. I was mad at myself. I was so disappointed with myself. Now I had planned to go back to school and finish because the due date, my baby's due date was going to be after graduation.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: unfortunately I let my dad talk me out of going back to school. So I didn't go back. That has haunted me forever, and the thought of having a child was I decided to have my child because, Rhonda, you're old, you're mature, and I think a part of that whole being responsible since I was five or six years old for my siblings was you can't not have your child. You're going to have to gird up and you have to do what you got to do. But I know that deep inside that I was very disappointed in myself because that's not how I planned my life at all. I definitely had not planned to have a child out of wedlock, and I wasn't mm-hmm. even sure if I got married unless I married somebody that really, really wanted children because I was actually tired, Michael, from being so responsible for my siblings. I just mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it anymore.
2: But you, you did persevere. I mean, you, I you, did. And- you, you, moved, you moved into a profession, and part of that talk about that part of your life as well, the, the professional part of Rhonda. Um, you know what she was able to do uh, for herself for her family. Just what, what, were we, what were we able to do for Rhonda during yeah, those years? So, I
1: mean, it 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 is sometimes amazing to me, and I am very thankful. And I also sometimes have to encourage myself to say to say to myself, Rhonda, look at all that you have accomplished despite the decisions that you made, you know, after the baby was born. You know, I think I worked at J.C. um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. Any, and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I packed up from uh, living in Colorado Springs and I went back east.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I got a job with a long-distance, reseller company and from that job as a customer service person I was promoted to a senior customer service rep although they should have said supervisor and I went to New York City and I became the head of the customer service department from there it went into IT because I was so good with computers and Mm -hmm. so then the next thing you know I'm in the IT field and I'm you know doing the help desk and ended up my probably my greatest, if you could say, success in the IT world, I worked at the Pentagon for Headquarters Army. And um, another young lady and I wrote the manual for setting up Blackberries because everything had to be so classified. And Mm -hmm. so we created the, you know, the book for all the other technicians to use to set up a BlackBerry so that it was secure enough for the Army to use. So that's probably, you know, one of my really proud moments. Then I, um, you know, have taken some different twists and turns. I ended up in real estate. I got my real estate license. I've managed some properties, you know, things like that. And, and, And now, for some reason, I'm in the health field, and I'm a TMS technician, so I give treatments, transcranial magnetic stimulation treatments to people that have major depressive disorder. So I cannot say that oh, you because I didn't finish school and because I raised a child by myself that I should even begin to feel like a complete failure. And then, of course, my son ended up in the NBA. So it's like, hmm. you know, there are some successes in my life that, yeah, like I said, I can only be thankful. And, and even when I said earlier, I realized how intelligent That I am. Mm Sometimes it is still frustrating and even maybe a little bit in the earlier years, Michael, because, again, I could have accomplished more with that degree, meaning that people would have put me in different positions or I would have gotten different jobs that when you look at them, they say, must have a bachelor's degree. And so you couldn't even really And don't think I didn't try, because I would try to fix up the resume, but, you know, when they are using that as, the like, almost the number one standard, then they pretty much toss it right out, so they don't, you know, they don't get to meet you. And, of course, as we move more into the electronic world, it even became, you know, because they use, like, PeopleSoft software, so they don't even get to see you as a person. It goes through the software, and if they don't see the keywords, they're looking for a degree, they don't see it, you're not getting an interview. So um, that's been a little disturbing, but... You know, other than that, I, I would have to say that I'm proud of myself, you know, and even though my career, to be honest with you, is a little bit like a gypsy because I was raising a boy by myself, and all I mm-hmm. really was doing was trying to find the best jobs to make the most money that somebody would allow me into. So when the opportunities came, hey, I, had, I, I knew how to use the computer. I had mm-hmm. was managing a whole construction office site, And they said, Rhonda, you probably should try to be on a help desk. And I'm like, huh? But then I became like a top help desk person because so many IT people are techie, and they really can't talk to the end user so the end user understands. So then I became the person that they wanted to train. You know, I was always somebody I would say, you need to train. You need to do this. And I would train the other incoming technicians how to have the correct customer service skills and qualities to talk to people on the phone. So I, I cannot say that I haven't had uh, you know, a good success, like I said, despite
2: somewhat rough rough beginnings. <laughs> <laughs> so how're you doing today? You've gone through a, a, a year that I don't even think there are words for. How are you doing?
1: So I am going to be sixty four years old tomorrow this goes back to the comment that I said that there's things going on that I just didn't think. I didn't think at 64 years old that um, I wouldn't be sharing my life with anybody. I I, I wouldn't think that with all the, the places I've been and all the successes I've had and all the people that I've met,
0: mm-hmm. that I would
1: not be sharing my life with anyone. And I think that if I allow it to sometime, it haunts me. I think that it's difficult being here in Colorado um, because, there is like when I lived in D C there's so much more to do culture wise and with people. The focus though also isn't necessarily on, you know, you not being connected with a significant other because there's so much right. to do. Colorado almost blasted in my face. Um, I lost my mother and my other grandmother. So we lost I lost one grandmother. My mother's the maternal grandmother I lost in seventy one. But I lost mm-hmm. my father's uh mother last year in February and turned around and lost my mother in May. So oh. that, you know, takes a little bit of toll on again how I expected my life to be at this point. Sometimes the relationship with my son is a struggle and that's uh makes things hard. And I don't really feel like I have the friend like all of my friends are somewhere else. And that's because all of my travelling. I mean I'm, but I'm still very social. I meet people. I've met some nice people here. I've met some people at the church, but that like the friendship I have, for instance, with Michelle, well, yeah. Michelle many now, but the friend I, friendship I have with Michelle, I don't, those kind of friendships. And I don't know if it also, it, it may not have nothing to do with the place, Michael, it may have to do with the time that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. The pe- people don't seem to have the gut like we used to have and yeah. and the, honesty and the sincerity and the openness. And I don't know if maybe CU actually really did to us. It actually forced us, I think, to be a closer-knit community because Mm -hmm. we lived on this big campus and a lot of that campus almost seemed like it was against us. So all we really had was each other. And so I think that some of the quality friendships that I developed at CU – Uh, that's the type of friendship that I crave and it's kind of missing now so but you know other than that I'm good you know my job is good I have three grandchildren they live in Irvine I don't see them as much as I used to when we all were together but again I have a lot to be thankful for I'm happy um, you know for the most part I just those are just things that I wish you know I'm not getting ready to jump off the bridge or anything like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) you know but I would like I don't know, some things to be just always. Some things we all, I think we all do. I always want some things to be a little different. And I really am in the decision process of, Rhonda, okay, this this is it. Like next year is 65, and I don't know if I want to call a retirement or time to go on Medicaid, Medicare, mm-hmm. it? Medicare or whatever, but where do you really want to spend your final years? I was in Florida in April for a couple of days, and I said, this is my happy place. I got to find my happy place because I think that's very important now.
2: You're still searching. You're still seeking. Yeah. You know, And I don't know if you realize that's really the beauty of you is that you are, you know, I always think of the story of the, of the, of the, of the, the person who walks around with the lantern looking for that one honest person, you know, that mm-hmm. one good Samaritan. And then you meet someone like you who is that same thing. You're, you're You're going with that torch. you're looking for that thing your 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 journey is not complete you know right you you, know, you still have those miles to go. just listening to you over this uh past bit of time it's it's actually for me encouraging to know that we don't reach this point in life where we just give up and say, well, oh, that's it. I'm done right you right,
1: know
2: right. what i mean and and I hear that with you i mean do you sense that in yourself or?
1: I do, and it's funny because I meet I feel like too many people that are in our age group or our generation that actually have given up or stopped living, and I can't now that doesn't compute with me at all like yeah. i i you know I don't feel like that we should ever stop living or 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 having trying to make the next journey, and there should be a next journey, so you're absolutely right about that about me, and I'm still the same. I still could be a gypsy, easy. Now I could actually live in a hut, you know what I'm saying, on the water. Yeah. I don't need a big house. In a, as long as I can share in the experiences of people, you know, it's, it's one thing even for me to say that I don't, I would like to have a closer friend nearby. But on the other hand, I would love to go on a journey where I'm like, I don't know, I, I don't really want to be a missionary, but, you know, just to go live in an experienced life with you know, people for a couple of years in that country and people are, I could do that for the rest of my life to be honest with you. And so I always feel that way and I and I feel like that we should always still treat life as an adventure and not say, Oh well, I'm sixty four now, I didn't make anything of myself, so I need to just and then I and I think it helps to be content with small things. I've really learned to appreciate small things because of some of the losses that I've experienced that, you know, to really be thankful for what I do have and not really focus on what I don't, you know, even though I mentioned like having a love in my life or something, but the reality yeah. of it is that I try very hard every day to get up and be thankful for what I do have and even the people that I do like for instance. We celebrated my birthday last night, and I had gone into a slump last week, and I didn't want to do it. I, I canceled it. And the, uh-huh. the people that I do know out here, they kept pressuring me and pressuring me. So we, I said, okay, okay, we'll do it. And we went to a place down in Lone Tree called Clock Tower Grill, and we did karaoke. If you're ever really around me, you see that my friends don't never match, but they'll all come together because of me. And we had so much fun singing karaoke, dancing. And it was just a ball. So, obviously, I was very glad I went. I mean, I got showered with, you know, one of my favorite things is red wine. I got about, I think, like three or four bottles of red wine sitting here. I got flowers from my brother. To me, that was huge. You know, stuff like that. So, although there's some things in my heart that I would really like special, but all the things that are happening really are just as special, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying?
2: I thought it was fascinating that, you work with with people who who deal with depression. You know, I lost my sister to depression. Right. You know, oh
1: wow. Um,
2: um, about uh, God, 2012. It, it took its toll on her. And so when I I, I saw that, I, I wanted to reach out and ask what it's like trying to help people through that very difficult phase of their lives. And, and what is it? What, what's it like for you to to, to 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 see the impact that you may be having for for folks who are going through such tough times?
1: I am probably the best layman counselor that there is. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Ah,
1: ah. I am serious. And I, you know, when I was at CU, I I really, really wanted psychology to be my major. I wanted to be Mm. a counselor probably since I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. How I got deterred and distracted, I really can't explain it all. So now I'm in a position where... I really get to talk to people and inspire them and encourage them. And as long as I don't go outside of any kind of clinical guidelines, like the people that come see me right now, Michael, to get their treatment, they Mm -hmm. don't want to leave. They don't Um, want their treatment to stop because they say, I don't want to leave you. And the doctors even said, I'm pretty sure this program is going as good as it is because you're here. And so it just depends upon the person. I mean, they obviously want to talk about their life, and I think to a certain degree it's refreshing for them to be able to talk about what's going on and not beginning always a clinical definition or, or a clinical explanation. But, you know, for me to be able to easily say, Man, you just gotta find joy in things. I know you're going through a hard time, but go outside today and take a walk. Smell the flowers, look at the sunshine. You know, I was telling one guy the other day, be grateful for what you have. And I've had to learn that. And so it's like a casual It's a casual conversation, but I find that I get to be so much, you know, input. And sometimes people think that I really am the counselor. (laughs) One time I was gone for a couple of days, and um, one of the clinicians answered the phone. And the lady said, you know, is Rhonda there? I need to talk to Rhonda. And so she said, I need to, you know, get my appointment scheduled or whatever, da, da, da. And so Stephanie, her name is Stephanie, she said, well, Rhonda's out today, but I could help you. I'm one of the clinicians, and so the lady said, "No, no, no, when's she coming back? I'd rather talk to her <laughs> and i mean it's it's huge for me because the some of, I get my fulfillment, I get my gratification, I get my kudos from relationships, and so even at work to be able to help people like I said, from a layman's point of view, now, mm-hmm. I have to be careful because it's draining. And then there, because there is people that I really, really want to help, and there's only so far that I could go. Like there's people I really want to get deep with, but yeah. I can't, you know, because I'm not, I'm not the counselor. I'm not licensed, and I've toyed with going back to school. But when I started adding up the money, and of mm-hmm. course now it used to be you could be a counselor with just your bachelor's degree and you could get your license. Now everybody wants you to have a master's, and I'm, man, I counted up them pennies and them years, and I said I ain't doing it now. Should I have done it a long time ago? Absolutely. <laughs> now I'm like, uh, yeah.
2: I'm, I'm going to ask you this. I'm going I'm to hit you with that last question now. You're sitting down in a room with, with 18-year-old Rhonda.
1: Mm-hmm. It was just,
2: just just the two of you in the room.
1: So before you ask that question, can we? I want to revisit something about CU. Go
2: ahead. Yeah,
1: that I that I think we should talk about the takeover of the arts and science building.
2: Uh, I remember it well. I was there.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
2: <laughs> and
1: you know what was going on then, and the impact that that actually had. On my life, because I think that was huge, I think that was very huge, and I was thinking about that even on the way home, you mm-hmm. know here to talk to you, you know the fact that the school wanted to get rid of all the programs that were helping those of us they called minority students, but yeah. then also it was at the same time that the law school was trying to boycott course
0: because mm-hmm.
1: they wouldn't hire again minorities. So we, well, I mentioned Doug. Too, and we talked about Doug, and I had run into Doug in New Jersey. So I don't remember how I found out. Now, who introduced me to the group of students that were really wanted to be advocates for change? And I remember that getting there. And although in my heart I've always wanted change, when the Vietnam War broke out, and I saw how many young people we were losing. In the Vietnam War, and we didn't even really know where, why we were there. Yeah, I think that's what really kicked into my spirit that I also had this fight in me to help make things different if I could. And then fast forward mm-hmm. back to see you. I got invited to the meeting. I went to the meeting. It helped to see Doug because I thought he was cute as I don't know what.
2: Doug Lane, all seven foot yes. Doug Lane. Yeah.
1: Yes, and but then he was so charismatic and he was so passionate about what he believed and some of the other people there uh, and, and, it, and it was great because it was a diverse group of people. I And it helped make the passion in me that was alive. And to, for, to fight in the 70s for something that was going to help everybody, it was going to ha- help black students, it was going to help Mexican students, but it was also going to help people who were going to get future jobs, and then to see, you know, Caucasians that didn't think these things were fair either. So then when it came down to it, though, as it got closer and closer to it and we decided that what we were going to do was to make our voices be heard, was to take over the arts and science building. Mm -hmm. And I remember having all these mixed emotions because I thought, Rhonda, you could go to jail. You, like, really could go to jail for this. You could die in this. But I knew in my heart of hearts that it was something that we had to do and to get up and to be in that building at six o'clock in the morning and to make ourselves visible. And so when you look back over the history of America and you look at the things that did create change, they always had to be magnanimous. They had Mm -hmm. to be huge like that for people to pay attention because if you and i'm not i'm i'm one of the best letter writers in the world i can write a letter state the case help you you know as much as possible but there's something about the visual and there's something about when people do something and when they do it without violence but their very yeah. their stand is very strong and of course the unity we had and yeah. so i that was probably one of my proudest moments and one of the greatest accomplishments in life that I think that I ever had. And I remember my mom said she had turned on the TV and she said, the first thing she said is, oh my God, Rhonda White's in that. My daughter Rhonda's in it. Then she said, no, I know my daughter's crazy, but she wouldn't have be crazy. And she said, nope, you're in it. And then she mm-hmm. called me and she said, I was looking on the TV. Were you in it? And I said, yes, mom, I was in it. And she said, I knew you were in it. And I <laughs> said, yeah, but she didn't get angry. She did not get angry at all. She didn't really say, "Yay, good for you." But there was something I I felt like that she felt like, you know, she was she was proud that her daughter, you know, had yeah. those kind of guts. And so, okay, now we can look at the 18-year-old Rhonda. <laughs> well,
2: before we do before we do that, this we brought back something because I never thought I would talk to folks who were inside there. You know Doug, I thought it's funny. I talked to Doug. He said, "Brody, I gotta remember. I don't remember you from all of that." And I'm like, "Dude, you're the one who talked me into doing it." <laughs> uh huh. Right. And you know, being inside, this was the only face I remember, and hearing you, and and hearing the passion, it reminds me of why I said yes. Yeah. You know, and I remember sitting up. I was in Arnett Hall. That's where I, That's where my dorm was. I, I sat up all night, going, "What am I doing? My father's going to kill me." You know, and I mean i you yeah, know, my dad's military too, you know. And I kept trying to figure what am I doing this for? i better have a really good reason because if something happens, I need to have something. And I remember going, Hey, that constitution is a good idea. We ought to try to live by that. Right. And as silly as that sounded, that was my motivation for going down there that morning. You know, we got in there and we I think maybe an hour or two into it we made the news, we the national news on C B S radio and Wow, we thought it was a big deal, and, you know, Fitz and Rayvon and all the guys, you know, brought us food, because one thing we forgot to pack was food. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they brought us they brought us Taco Bell for lunch, and, and at some point, you know, they were talking about tear gas and some of bullets, and we were trying to figure out. The SWAT team
1: came. The yeah. SWAT team came. They we were, were ready. We a little while, and the SWAT team came, and I thought, man. you know, again, I thought, what have I done? And then if this gas comes in here, what are we going to do? Yeah. Then you still feel like there was still something inside, like, nope, got to stand strong. Whatever the outcome is, we're going to – and look at all the change, though, that came out of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff, you know, and we had Mary Frances Berry. You know, she flew back from Washington and negotiated, whatever, and Mm -hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then promptly resigned and left and went back to D.C. and you know there was so many things, right? You know, and I look at some of the things that we we talk about today, and 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 uh, I'm trying to think of the right word because it's not a sense of urgency; it's a sense of expectation at this point that you know the university where we started, our university, should do better than it's done because you know we we've been doing enough. We're not. Negotiating at this point, we're not saying, "Hey, boy, yeah. it would be nice yeah. to blah blah blah." It's like, no, you know, because we went there, we have a higher expectation of you,
1: right?
2: And you know, maybe that's what the point behind this entire project. Maybe that's what Black and Gold is about. Is is us claiming our turf and yeah. saying, "This is ours," and this is what we expect. And, and during it, we're not going to ex- accept no as an answer, right? Because that's not acceptable anymore. We we've 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 done enough, we've seen enough, we're we're through with all of that. It's time for a different right. day. And I don't think I knew how big of a deal that was then. I I remember I sat in there drawing pictures of trees. <laughs> you know, Right, for right, some right. odd reason. You know, we were talking about, yeah, well if the tear gas comes in, we're we'll just take these trash cans and put it over the top of tear gas and that'll keep yeah, the gas yeah. under control yeah. You know, and all that stuff. Yeah, because I mean, we didn't have no
1: mask or anything like that. Nothing. Protect, you know what I'm
2: saying? Nothing.
1: I, I, I think some people might have bought little um, scar- little scarves. What are those called? You know, the little... Yeah, little, little
2: bandanas or whatever.
1: Bandanas, but... thank you. But other than that, we had no protection against that at nothing. all. And, nothing. Um, but we were fierce. We were. The thing is, we were fierce, and I... If anything that's just amazing that at nineteen twenty eighteen yeah. that we were so fierce in yeah. such a time, and um mm. like the it's just and then the, like you said, I didn't even realize we didn't realize right away all the positives. you know I knew that the be the the none of the uh minority programs were going away that right away that yeah, and that exactly was right you know a big thing for us, but I remember walking into there's a jewelry store in uh Cherry Creek Mall,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I walked in that store in like 2001. And this wonderful, beautiful black lady helped me at the jewelry counter. My son was playing for Denver then. When we got finished talking, and she was helping me, and she said her name was—I don't remember her first name. She said, "My name is So and So Moses." Mm-hmm. And she's and so we were we were talking about my son, and she said, "My my husband is Haven." Oh I my said, goodness. What? And she said, You know how hard it was, or whatever we're talking about, course. Well, he became the head HR person at course. Yeah. Now, I just wonder, in talking to you now, if we hadn't done what we did in 76, was that? 76, 77.
2: 77.
1: 77. Thank you which because of those law students who were against course in their hiring practice, would a Haven Moses ever been the head of HR at course?
2: And we both know the answer to that. Thank you. Now, there was a lot of pushback over the years, of course, but there are also a lot of things that we accomplished, and uh, right. I think that that's something for us to be proud of. You yeah. know, it gave me, I think, the courage or the confidence to to start doing plays on campus, you know, and you know, and without the help of the theater department, just did them on my own. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it gave a lot of us this this uh, uh, confidence that yeah, we could do some things, and we could that, that we're there's something bigger than us that, that we're about. Yeah, and it's that spirit I hear in every single person I talk to that you talk to, yeah, yeah. And, and I do
1: feel like sometimes that I may have. Even though I've just told you all the good things about transferring to Gremlin, there is a part of me that also feels like CU was a project that I didn't finish. You know, Mm. that even though I am a person of color and I wanted that comfort, you know, blah, 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 and I wanted to experience the black school, that maybe, sometimes I think just maybe, my work, that project was to be finished at CU. Does that make sense? Like,
2: I, you know, yeah,
1: yeah. so yeah. I do sometimes that, that kind of hits me like, you know, you started a work there and you didn't finish it because you needed to be, because you're, I am a type of person that as much as I sometimes think I want to, I know that my life isn't the one that just always takes, can take the comfort. I'm not, I'm not the person that's supposed to take the comfort seat. Yeah. And so, but there, you know, there's things that you learn as you get older and you say, oh, I could have done that different or I should have done that different because there was, the road might have been a little rocky, but because I care so much about people, you know, I still could have helped. It it doesn't mean I haven't blazed paths anywhere else. But that might have been a path that I sometimes think I should have stayed to keep blazing. You know what I'm saying?
2: But you took the road less traveled. Right. And, right. and as they say, that has made all of the difference.
1: Right. Right.
2: So now let's talk to that girl.
1: About the 18-year-old sitting at the cover yeah.
2: table. But let's talk to her now.
1: Okay. Talk to her.
2: What? You know, Talk to her. What are you saying to her?
1: Man... I would I would tell that 18-year-old that you are much more beautiful, much more stronger than you think you are, and embrace who you are, love who you are, believe in who you are, and let life take you through the journeys because you're going to accomplish much, and you're going to meet many people, and you're going to make a huge difference in their life, huge differences in their lives, and um don't focus so much on the things growing up that hurt you that almost seemed like they were going to destroy you because man, what you're getting ready to see Rhonda going down the end of the road is just gonna be amazing. it really is it really is.
0: And so it is. Thank you for listening to Black and Gold on Anchor. Black and Gold is a production of the Black and Gold Project, Our Legacy. You can reach us on our Facebook site, or if you'd like to be involved maybe in a future conversation, reach out to us at Boulder Black and Gold at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Remember, we are all truly golden. I love you.